They think something's happened. It has now. Let's get started. Another race for the world's greatest driver, Juan Manuel Fangio. Former world champion Jim Clark leapt into the lead. That's Clark's Lotus going like a bomb. And James Hunt is the world champion by just one single point. By being a racing driver, you are under risk all the time. And if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you're no longer a racing driver. And that is Michael Schumacher ahead, the world champion. To become a four-time world champion, Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, champion of the world. That's for all the kids out there who dream the impossible. Max Verstappen, for the first time ever, is champion of the world. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of F1 in Review, the episode and the hour where we look back at round 5, the first ever Miami Grand Prix in Formula 1 history. I'm Tom Claiborne and I'm joined by Tristan Fancourt and Angus Gallagher as pair. You can follow myself and Tristan individually on Twitter as well as the F1 in Review accounts. Well, Sunday just gone, had a treat installed for us, according to my notes. Yeah, apparently, we were treated, yes, that's treated, to the first ever <laughs> Miami Grand Prix, aptly named the Miami International Autodrome, where it was held. And that saw Verstappen rise from third place and continuing his 100% record this season of winning every race that he finishes. Now, those who fail geography will realise that Miami is in the United States, and anyone who knows anything about US culture will tell you that US sports events that are held there, they're big, they're brash, and they're bound to cause controversy. Now, I'm of the opinion where I say that everything about this Grand Prix the most exciting elements of them, or the most controversial, or the ones that stick out in my mind, were that that didn't happen in the race. Arguably, I'm being too harsh here, but you have the fake water in the marina to start with, you have the, the pre-race show in the event as well. Uh, I mean, obviously, they would have died to have a sprint race there as well. We, of course, were saved from that. You had every US celebrity you can think of, which is part of the course, I guess, really being in a Formula One race before the entire thing kicked off. You had the police escort as well from the top three all the way from the finishing grid of one, two, and three to the podium. You had the race caps being replaced by NFL helmets. You had the statue of some Miami Dolphins player right in the line of the uh, the podium there. But um, my conclusion of this is it's good entertainment if you're from the United States, if you're into that sort of stuff, but the race itself was rather dull. What do we make of the first ever Miami Grand Prix, Jans? Sound like a little old fogey there, Tom. No, oh, this new Formula One lug is all about entertainment now, and I don't like the fact that they haven't got caps. Um, actually, they they have done that before. Not not the helmets, which I That's must, true. must say I I dislike strongly as well. So I'm also going to sound like an old fogey, Tom. Don't you worry. Um, they they used um sombreros when we back to when we went back to Mexico for the first time for a while, and whenever we go to a new place they they uh tend to bring out something um related to the area no idea what it's gonna be when we go to las vegas for the first time i assume they'll um i don't know what, what do you think like giant poker chip hats or something or maybe they'll they'll Uncle dress Tower them type up thing well I, I was thinking maybe um if you've seen the disney la uh, the disney cartoon alice in wonderland with the the army of cards 
like um, they'll just dress them <laughs> up like that or something like that. I don't know. It, it was all over the top. It's far too over the top for my liking. I don't know. Americans out there, because we do actually have American listeners. Hello. Addressing you directly. Is this what you like? Do you enjoy this? Is this something that you think, yeah, I can get behind that? Because to us, maybe it's because we're used to Formula One not being like that. But Mm. it just felt a bit grotesque, I think is how I would describe it. And, and, And exaggerated and over the top in the worst cringy possible way like the police escort for Max Verstappen to go to the go to the podium just really really cringy and then the well the I mean the the spectacle that was the ticker tape parade sort of thing on on the um when they got to the podium that was so thick with ticker tape that you couldn't see through it and it just seems like a waste and then but even looking away from that buying earplugs at the miami grand prix would set you back forty dollars forty dollars for these little earplugs or tickets for the yacht club starting at nine thousand five hundred dollars and up to thirty eight thousand dollars for a four-person pass i mean everything about the miami grand prix like around the racing felt exaggerated over the top and, and maybe that's to be expected right isn't that's kind of what we buy into but i think for me the worst bit the most cringy bit was just the grid walk because that was almost embarrassing um for poor martin brundle who actually had to do it um I want to read you his quote on Twitter because he he posted about it. He said, there's a reason why I never watch back any of the F1 grid walks in a quarter of a century of doing them. You have no idea how much I dislike doing them, but defined my professional career. Oh, well, that's the way it is. And when I was watching it, I didn't want to watch it either. I felt so sorry for him as he was trying to walk down the grid where all the cars were waiting to line up and race and there was supposed to be drivers around for them to interview and interesting people but it was packed full of those that i would deem celebs you know sort of z-listers that no one really has any idea who they are and there is the odd few like proper celebrities we had the the williams sisters there the tennis players we had david beckham there with pharrell williams but then on the other hand we had the gentleman that described himself as a i'm quoting this social media sensation any Mm. idea who he was i have no idea who he was why was he there it was embarrassing the amount of people that were there only so that they could say that they were there and didn't care about the sport and you and you might ask me, well, what what do you expect? You know, what's what's the point then? Well, I would say actually the point is get those people off. We don't care about them. Let fans on. Let people who have an interest in the sport on. You know, maybe instead of spending nine thousand four hundred dollars on a on a fake boat in a fake marina, they could sell those tickets to get on the pit and actually take a look at the cars close up. Wait, or, or us, we'll do it because mm. I reckon it's harder for press and media to get on the grid than it is for B-list celebrities that no one's ever heard of. I mean, it's ridiculous the amount of barriers they put up for um, professionals that want to get into and and are interested in the sport, but they're quite happily open the floodgates for people who are pretty uninteresting and will be definitely uninteresting in about 10 years' time. So, yeah, 
I I felt for Martin Brundle really. I thought it was interesting. That it was good that he was able to find some proper celebrities and proper interesting people. But to be honest, it was just a whole mess of a spectacle around it. Yeah, it's um. Oh, I'm trying so hard to be diplomatic here. This is what I'm really going to aim to do. It's um, you're you're right in complete completely right in that it's not what we're used to. It's not. I don't think it's. It, it doesn't make us evil or anything like that. If we are stick to our our tradition, our more traditional guns, and say that that is something which didn't make us feel comfortable or that we didn't like, there is various aspects which. And to be honest, I'm glad I missed some of them because I ended up missing the pre-race because I was out doing a run. So I missed the fun grid walk. I missed missed the the camera shots of the the fake marina. And then I went to bed pretty much straight after the race, so I missed the... Oh, the honestly, when I seen that picture of the NFL cat, the NFL oh. helmets, I just died of laughter. It's like, I, like... It just looks horrendous. It's kind of like... I remember the, so the, when they had the cowboy hats with Pirelli on in Austin, a bit too far. The Russian... I don't know the name of those Russian hats, but the ones they wore on the podium in Sochi. Yeah. Again, too far. NFL helmets. My God. Um, it just, it just, I get, you know what? The one thing I could say maybe in their defense was you never know, you, you never know until you try things. And the whole point of, I know it's a stretch. That's, the, that's uh, like the, the thing that uh, parents uh, use to make children eat the vegetables, right? But you won't know if you don't eat it. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> um, but it just, it felt, I want to say forced. And I get that an event such as this will actually bring a lot of eyeballs onto F1 and give it a lot more exposure which of course is what we want in one regard we want more people to watch F1 and we want more people to as a result start to uh, get into it and start watching it and become loyal fans Um, but that's so long as they see what F1 actually is and this very much felt like this whole race weekend it felt like just ticking a box in terms of show and entertainment as opposed to actual quality because the racetrack, you know, it was quite nice. Um, you had like, I don't know, well, like most tracks these days, you had some long straights, you had a little twiddly bit, you had some nice flowing corners. And that's that's about it. Um, overtaking was tricky. I can't even imagine what this race would have been like in last year's uh, cars with the the reduced the uh, even more reduced downforce and the fact that you couldn't follow as easily um, would have been a ball fest last year. Um, <laughs> And it was only really lightened and brightened up by that late safety car. Yeah. The Formula One website yeah. uh, called it an enthralling Grand Prix. Don't know what, what were they no. watching? What were they? What, what were they watching? Well, I wasn't watching the yeah. same race. I was like, it was. I know you had. It was a race which for forty four was it forty three forty forty four laps was bland at best. I remember reading. I re- remember reading an F one report back in the day. And a word which I which I like to use sometimes about sporting events, the word soporific, which basically means it just, if you know what that means, basically, if you're not sure, it basically means quite quite dull and boring. Um, this race was certainly soporific. Um, but it livened up, of course, with the late safety car incident. It gave some drivers the chance to put some fresh tyres on. Got ourselves a battle for the lead, which was very interesting. And we got ourselves for the, a pass for the lead, to be fair, in lots of races which have been dull. You can't then look back and say, well, there was a battle for the lead. In this one, it was dull, but there's a battle for the lead. So, you know, that was a silver lining of that. But at the same time, the overall quality of the race just... It, it wasn't great. There's a couple of incidents. Things happened. 
um, people benefited, like for example, George Russell, George Russell and Esteban Ocon managed to benefit from the safety car, put some fresh tyres on, and get some action going in the last section of the race. But overall, uninspiring. It makes you think if we're going to be increasing the calendar to twenty three to twenty five races by filling it with events like this, is it really worth it? I mean, you hope that Las Vegas next year is considerably considerably better. But at the same time, I can foresee it being a carbon copy of this event, both in terms of racing, in terms of hype, and in terms of what it delivers. Yeah, I left this Grand Prix in terms of me going to bed really disappointed because I did have a lot of hope in terms of this Miami Grand Prix. The circuit looks far better than the Vegas one to come, but it's quite telling that in my notes I've got 10 bullet points when it comes to the race and over a page in terms of non-racing activity. I mean, this was one where it just, as you say, vitally needed a safety car to be interesting. And sure, a lot of that's down to Verstappen, who we'll get onto being so good and making amends after a poor qualifying. But it was one of those where there were incidents that we included in the highlights of Alonso turning into Gasly, for example, lap 39, where would that have been a highlight in a normal race? Probably not, no, because there'd been so much that would have happened that you wouldn't have had to show that. But because that was included in the show reel, it shows the sort of lack of events that happened there, really. It all got spiced up, and there was a, effectively a sprint race in all but name, really, after that safety car happened. But once again, as you say, it's, it's a circuit, and it's it's been tested out in Formula 1, and it's not delivered what I thought it would. And with the whole atmosphere around there, in terms of the sort of pre-events and the post-race events, you could tolerate that to a degree. You could somewhat stomach the helmets that they had to go and wear and the rest, if there was actually a really solid race. And granted, the quality of racing has been really good in terms of the spectacle we've seen elsewhere, so the bar is arguably higher than it would ordinarily be. But this was so, so low that you go, well, is it worth it? And you've got to go and say, absolutely not at this point. And it's one of those, I thought to myself, Texas was as big as it's going to get in terms of the hype and the pre-events and the whole rigmarole around that the steps are going to be as far as we go in terms of changing the cap. But I do fear that Vegas will be even worse than this, if that's possible. There'll be an entire year building up to this one Grand Prix. They'll be making their own Netflix documentaries about just the Vegas Grand Prix. Yeah, Vegas, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I apologise to all our American listeners out there who've just gone, what is that accent? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I just uh, was Northern Irish for a second. Uh, anyway, <laughs> but yes, um, disappointed because, as I say, the quality's got to be in the racing, not beforehand. If you want to go and watch a show where someone's singing or where there's ticker tape, go elsewhere to not Formula One, really. I mean, I think I'm largely tolerant in terms of Formula One adapting and moving with the times, but this really was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. I just think what we were concerned about Miami sort of ended up coming into fruition. And... This isn't even yeah. This isn't the end of the story with those with the the continuation of our embedding into America and I suppose the assimilation of American sporting culture into Formula One. And there is some good that comes out of that actually because we would be naive to think that America is not important to the sport because it absolutely is and it has a long and interesting heritage to uh, you know aligning itself with Formula One. 
and it's even better that we now have an American team in the form of Haas. I'm waiting for our first American driver. They'll be absolutely fantastic to have in the sport. But if you if you ask me what what's my takeaway, I'd say, well, it's a very memorable race. Well, it sort of is a memorable race weekend and a memorable event. So, you know, if that was the objective, then absolutely job done. But you've got to start asking the question of of what what where does it go next from here? Because as you just said, Tom, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is going to have to be even bigger. Like if they don't strap Max Verstappen to a Pirelli branded jetpack, I'm going to be <laughs> massively disappointed in them or parachute the drivers in from, uh, you know, high above um, the stadium. Oh, I can see that. I can yeah. See that. In, in, uh, and it's going to have, it's going to have their names on the parachute and Latifi will have an, will have three F's in his name instead of two as they put on the uh, on the car that took him round the, the track. Um, yes, he was the Latifi um, <laughs> for the day. <laughs> Poor Latifi, can't catch a break. Um, bless him. So, yeah, I've, and that was the thing. It was it was a boring race. We kind of had the, the crashes occur in free practice. And then throughout the race, I felt like because... Max was able to get past Leclerc relatively easily on the straights because of the DRS, and he had that straight line speed. They call it the VMAX speed. Then, as a result, he kind of was able to pull into the lead and start cruising, which reduced the amount of accidents. And then, well, we're not really sure what went on in the rest of the race because the the TV directors decided not to show us any of the action there was a massive amount of of like midfield and and like battling going on lower down the the pack but we were kind of so caught up in not the spectacle at the front that when i was watching the timing screens i actually said into our little group chat i said what's going on with the the timing screens really weird like cars were moving up and down the order I now realise it's because they were overtaking and fighting and battling, but we didn't get to see any of it. Like I don't understand. Like why? Why did they focus on the uninteresting parts of the race and not show us anything on the front? Because I, I don't care whether or not David Beckham is staring into a screen watching the track. I don't care mm. if a, if a fan is particularly excited by the fact that you know their favorite driver's just gone past i want to see the action i don't <laughs> care about the other stuff in fact that was one of the better things about the sport in 2020 was there wasn't any of the frilly bits that are uninteresting and take away from the action i mean at least this time they waited an extra couple of laps before showing us the replay of the start I don't know if you noticed that. Um, I think yeah, yeah. instead of showing it to us on lap two or lap three, they showed it on lap, I think it was lap four this time when it, everything had settled down a bit. So well done. You're learning. That's brilliant. But I don't understand whether or not they had the same team from the Monaco Grand Prix doing the TV um, for this Miami one because it was pretty shocking, actually. And I had to go back into Formula One TV afterwards and go through the order to find out how Ocon went from P20 to... You p9 like and actually in fairness there was actually not that many overtakes it was but uh, that but he you know he did make some overtakes i had to go back and see what why was mick near sebastian vettel or why was gasly near norris i felt like the the 
directors just weren't really in control of showing us the fans the interesting part of the race and so at the end of it I was almost like oh well this is just going to be one of those snooze fests or as Angus you say soporific but thank goodness we had some sort of interesting thing go on that caused the safety car and you know it was a shame that Norris went out but his sacrifice was not in vain because as a result the Miami Grand Prix was was spiced up a bit because before that it was it was, as I say, a bit of a snooze fest, very uninteresting. And I don't know where they've conjured the word enthralling from in their description of it, because it, it just wasn't. I, I, um, I, unfortunately, my, my parents would have decided they were going to watch this race because they hadn't watched Formula One for ages. And I was like, oh, it's Miami, first time Miami, really close um, really close track, very small, but really fast, very thin, and uh, loads. There's going to be loads of action, loads of accidents, and there was just <laughs> nothing. And I was like, sure. oh god! At one point, one point, um, my uh, uh, my mum started untangling some um, wool because that was more interesting. <laughs> Yikes! That is damning. That is damning. Uh, to be fair, though, fair pay to Pierre Gasly for doing his best Lance Stroll impression there and giving us some well-deserved racing because it's one of those where I look at that incident now with Gasly and I just don't know what he was doing aside from not using his mirrors. And if I was uh, Norris, I'd be absolutely fuming how he just gently drifts into the side of him, sends him spinning in so many different circles, wheel pings off... But yeah, I don't think that's been talked enough uh, about enough, really, because that was just so moronic, really, from Gasly. I think it's not ide- it's it's not ideal from him. I mean, the thing is, he he's had what he's had contact with Alonso a few laps before. He's got a damaged car. You'd think that he would have at least pulled off the track earlier or gone into the pits. I saw him close to saying that. He wants to give it another give it another go for another lap. Um, imagine if something broke on your road car and you, it wasn't really drivable, and you were like, "Oh, you know, what? I'm just going to go to the next junction on the motorway, you know, just to see if it's okay." Um, <laughs> it's quite not the not the worst not the worst idea last year to have. Uh, so he, yeah, you could have could have stopped at the track and made things easier. But at the same time, he's turned the Miami Grand Prix from whatever it was, into enthralling. So, I mean, he's done us a favour, right? <laughs> no, no, seriously, like, he's, he should have, he should have pulled off the track. He's, in, an, in another scenario that ends up in a much worse accident, so he, you could argue he's endangered a competitor. So, like, yeah, I mean, he should have pulled over. But at the end of the day, it's one of those, again, which, again, it's cliched or cop out to say this, but could go down as a racing instant, you know. So, <laughs> it's one of those, yeah, there were, were Blame could be apportioned to Gasly more, but it wasn't. If clear it was cut, anyone I'd else, say. though, that if it wasn't our beloved Gasly who did really well in the previous seasons and I think has worked his way into most people's you know hearts, if, imagine if it was Stroll. Oh yeah, I'd be fuming. Hmm. Not that I'm not now, but I think everyone would be like, "What the hell is he doing? Get him out of the sport! It's a danger to everyone." I mean, if Latifi as well, if he'd have done it, then. Blimey, he'd have not only been a meme, but getting a lot worse than that, unfortunately. But um, I think you're right there. Like Gasly has done a very good job in redeeming himself after Red Bull, and I think he personally is deserving of going to McLaren because it's not working out for Daniel Ricciardo quite clearly. But that was just 
quite showing that he's not the full package. He's not the complete driver that could perhaps, in my view, step up and replace Sergio Perez, who had a quite a good race, uh, I'd argue, particularly considering the power issues that he had. But yeah, he shows some vulnerability there, really. And um, I agree, Tristan, he's not getting enough flack for it, I wouldn't say. And moving up from Alpha Tauri to Red Bull, but not to Sergio Perez. Yes, he had that scare when it came to the power issue units, but still got himself uh, quite a decent fourth place considering all those issues. But contrary to my earlier thoughts in prior episodes, I'm increasingly now of the mind that if Verstappen is able to finish a race, he's pretty much in a league of his own, as we saw in terms of this race. Part of the reason I feel why Miami, Miami is so dull was because Verstappen was essentially in a league of his own and was just destroying all the competition around him. The, the stats show, in fact, that whenever he finishes a race, he finishes in first place when it comes to this season. He breezed past the two Ferraris. Yes, there's an argument to be made that they could have pitted for softs, as many of the commentators and pundits were saying, under the safety car I thought that science perhaps should have gambled for that bit of a free hit for him but there we go we can only deal with facts versus the hypothetical but he was able to make amends for Stappen that is for his qualifying mistakes so he's not indestructible but his pace is really really wild it's insane it's 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 far above the Ferraris I'd say at this point where you consider that previously Verstappen and Leclerc there'd be DRS chess going on one would take the lead and the other would take the lead and all be about the DRS detection zone but here you saw the F1 evolve you saw the regulations not serving its purpose in terms of bringing those two together because once Verstappen overtook the Leclerc's we saw, that was that. Game over. I thought, oh, okay, he's overtaken him. But don't worry, Leclerc will get him back. It's all fine, but not so much, which makes me think, is the advantage shifting now? Are oh, my prior comments of, oh, Ferrari have got it all wrapped up, X, Y, Z, proving to be, you know, false, really, because yes, Red Bull do have some reliability issues. Verstappen's spoken about it. Perez showed it, glimpses of it, shall we say, in the race gone by. But Verstappen looks like the man to beat, really, in my view. Yes, I, we throw back to Tom's prediction after, was it race two or three, saying, oh, Ferrari have got this in the bag, mate. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <it's, laughs> yeah. They'll, they'll still win the constructors, though. I'm confident of that. <laughs> well, I mean, the gap... The gaps are closing, and I think Ferrari have got away with one this weekend because had Perez's power unit issues not occurred, that was definitely a third place on the cards because there was enough of a gap where after the pit stop, well, after the pit stops uh, before the safety car, Perez was only one second behind Science because Science had an issue with the wheel nut, and that was despite the power unit issues. So you could argue that would have been an overtake without the power unit issues love the radio message that Perez had where his engineer said everything's all fine and Perez was like how is everything all fine I'm losing power mate <laughs> uh, not really gra- engineer really, not really grasping the situation but it worked out in the end we've seen it before where drivers have a power unit issue and then it kind of corrects itself or you click a few buttons and then it all works out but yeah Verstappen looks imperious he looks like and I linked an article into our group chat about the effect of him now being a world champion. He just driving. Last year he was driving like a world champion to be. This year he is driving like a world champion. He just looks, and it reminds me of when Sebastian Vettel won his first world championship back in 2010. And the year after, different scenario, admittedly, Vettel had a dominant car in 2011, but 
Vettel just looked monstrous in everything he did. He was extracting the maximum out of the car, qualifying the race all the time. And Verstappen has got a similar vibe at the moment, I'd say. Yes, there is the caveat of he's in a fight with an equal car and with a driver who, on his day, is as not if if as good, if not better than him, in Charles Leclerc. But Verstappen just he just looks imperious. He really is. It, I think it's really interesting to note. I was just looking beforehand his record in Formula One. So he has fourteen pole positions, which of course is a fantastic number. He has twenty three race wins. So you think sometimes those figures are around about even? Like Lewis Hamilton has about 100 poles, 100 wins, roughly. But Verstappen's numbers are outweighed in favour of the race wins. So it really shows you what an imperious driver he can be on race day. His race craft is on point. That start to get round Sainz, I don't think it's talked about enough because he's got a good start. He's not in a position... I'm not saying he's made something out of nothing, but he was in a position where second wasn't a slam dunk, but he's judged his braking perfectly. He's used the space in front of him behind Leclerc and then he's just got the outside line to a T for the inside for the next corner. So just little things like that, the race craft. He's got the fastest team in the pit lane in terms of pit stops. He is a lot more mature in his defence as well. We, we remember the days, this is a few years back, where Verstappen was, uh, I think, aggressive as an understatement. Even last year, he was definitely at various points, not over the line, but he was firm against Hamilton. Think Brazil or Monza or Saudi Arabia, ones that come to mind. Or even in Spain where he just dived bombed in the first corner and said, right, Lewis, you better get out of the way, mate, or else we're crashing. He seems a lot more, um, a lot less firm, but also still able to maintain position and still able to fend off the driver behind him. So... He's looking like he's looking like a complete package at the moment, and I think having that world championship. And he's spoken about it. He's spoken. I remember him speaking last year, back in the last year, about how if he didn't win the world championship, it wouldn't change his world. It's not a case of right. This is the one opportunity, and I have to get it. But it was also a case of he said, if I win one, that's me happy for the rest of my life. That's my ultimate goal. Any more is a bonus. And I think he's he's exhibiting that vibe at the moment. He just seems relaxed. He seems more like, not that he wasn't mature. He was mature for sure. I mean, he's got eight years of of F1 experience at the age of 24. He's definitely mature. But he just seems like there's an aura around him at the moment. And yeah, I mean, he just, I'm not, I'll never go as far as saying unstoppable, but he looks pretty clinical and uh, ruthless at the moment. And he's he's closing that gap to Leclerc pretty uh, pretty sharpish, isn't he? What would you say to Matteo Bonotto if you could um, interview him at the end of the race because he said at the end of the Miami Grand Prix it's true that Red Bull have improved their car since the very start of the season and they introduce upgrades. I'm going to say now that I'm not doing his accent because I, I, <laughs> I can't. No, I'm, I'm not going to do his accent <laughs> unless Matteo Bonotto suddenly become a uh, classic uh, Englishman. If I look at the last few races, maybe they've got a couple of tenths per lap faster to us. Now I have no doubt that in order to keep the pace, we need to develop ourselves and choose upgrades. I hope because there is as well a budget cap that at some stage Red Bull will stop development. Otherwise, I will not understand how they can do that. And what he's basically saying there is Red Bull have brought all their upgrades now 
and will not be able to keep developing throughout the season in order um, to maintain their pace advantage without exceeding the budget cap. So could this just be a case of Red Bull chucking all their upgrades now early into the season to get claw back that 40 point deficit which Max Verstappen had over Charles Leclerc um, at the beginning of the season because of his DNFs and actually they might lose that advantage later on in the season. Well, I think Red Bull had to solve that reliability issue they had, didn't they really? Uh, yes, there were teething problems with them moving from the Honda engine to the Red Bull uh, powertrains, but that had to be solved because the gap was massive and growing. And you'd think now that if they've solved those issues, they'll now be a competitive car until the end of the season. And looking as well at the landscape, it's only them versus Ferrari. And you've got to wait a, a few races, I'd argue, and then some to see teams like Mercedes come along and join the party. And then you've got the midfield as well, which I don't think will reach the Ferrari and Red Bull standards. So I understand with the landscape being you've got to go and beat X, i.e. Ferrari. They had to go and solve that issue to make sure the gap wasn't insurmountable. I mean... We we to be see how much development they've done and how close they are to that cost cap and whether they have played all their chips early. But you've got to go and say so far it's worked out because they are stretches above Ferrari. The question now is how does Ferrari respond? Do they simultaneously or do similar, should I say, to what Red Bull have done and panic and go, ah, the gap's rather big. We've got to go better go and bring some upgrades and then they go and do some stuff early and then you see essentially two peak uh, Ferrari versus Red Bull cars uh, by the start, of the, by the mid uh, range of the season before the summer break. So that's very interesting, but I completely understand why uh, Red Bull have done that. You've got to say to Ferrari's advantage though, it's a very big if, there's a lot of races to go, but currently, aside from in one race, they've finished with both cars. And that's really important when you consider not only the landscape of them being above and beyond the vast majority of their competitors aside from Red Bull and occasionally a Mercedes, that's to their advantage because if they finish a race and they'll finish it highly, that's huge uh, points on the board. Imola, for example, yes, they uh, Charles Leclerc got sixth, should have got third, but sixth compared to 19th for Verstappen in a retirement as well in Australia is nothing really, is it? So consistency, finishing and finishing well is vital, I'd say, for Leclerc and for Ferrari more generally. But of course, that's really fine margins, really, when you consider that often why you finish a race is not down to reliability. It's owing to someone like Mick Schumacher, for example, punting you off the track. So there we go. There's, you know, there's not too many controllables you have in your hands, but I wouldn't panic is my underlying message for uh, Ferrari at the moment because they've still got a very strong car. They can still out-qualify uh, Red Bull. The question now is how do they go and plot their strategy, I guess, which uh, are left to bigger brains than mine. Well, they, um, they've actually said... And that they won't declare what they're going to do. But we know some things. We know that Ferrari is going to bring their upgrades after five races. So if my calculations are correct, that's next. Um, that's the next race in Spain. But these won't be aero upgrades. So Red Bull has brought a package of aero upgrades and engine um, reliability fixes as well. So that's what they've been spending on. But because of the budget cap, because they've changed the rules so you can't just keep spending and spending and spending, 
you can't bring upgrades for every single race. And so far, Red Bull pretty much has, whereas Ferrari have not brought any yet. So they've really been biding their time. So we will have to wait and see, I guess, what those new um, aero upgrades will bring. Because the thing I think Ferrari have at the moment is such a brilliant package. I know Leclerc was on the radio saying, this car is difficult to drive, but... It looks like it's really not, and I think he was actually um, discussing the more like the tyres and how the tyres were affecting the car rather than the overall car performance because the Ferrari, no doubt, is in, is incredibly strong as stock. So, if my question is then, now if if they've only gained a couple of tenths, if Red Bull have brought all these upgrades and I suppose only gained a couple of tenths, Ferrari still surely have a bit of an advantage there because that leapfrogging that will be much that they need to do will be will be much less so what's more important to ferrari at the moment is it the 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 drivers world championship or is it the constructors world championship what do you think angus would is for would you think ferrari is willing to sacrifice leclerc's chance for a world championship if it meant they could get the constructors I don't know. I think it's a similar situation to last year because realistically, we talk about Max being the golden boy of Red Bull. Charles Leclerc is the golden boy of Ferrari. I mean, they promoted him after one year from Alfa, not Alfa Romeo, it was still Sauber back then, from Sauber to the Scuderia. You'd never see, I don't think a driver hit that young or inexperienced that had been promoted to Ferrari for literally the whole of F1 history. So... They desperately want that driver's championship, I'm sure, and they would prefer it for Leclerc, let's be honest. But at the same time, they ha- they haven't had a driver's championship since 2007. They haven't had a constructor's championship since 2008. So, th- obviously, I mean, because I was saying they'd want both. But if they had to pick one, I feel like the constructors is more lucrative like, because that's the team effort, that's the team achieving something quite incredible together. And even though Red Bull were absolutely buzzed with Verstappen being driver's champion last year, they still wanted that Constructors' Championship and they were just, they did seem disappointed when they didn't get it. But I think they'd take a driver's championship for Leclerc. And I don't think they'd sacrifice that for the Constructors, especially since Leclerc had been such a such a good start to the season he's got 104 points from maximum what 140 or something like that could have been even more if he hadn't spun it out in uh in Imola and science is already so far behind 51 points is it is it harsh to say that science may not make up 51 points across the season such as the the start obviously extremely early days but I'm not saying they need to put all the eggs in Charlotte Claire's basket but realistically if they're going to go for the drivers' championship, it needs to be with him. Now, of course, they have a car to consistently get those top results in the constructors to consistently get double podium, double top four finish, etc. One twos. But if if they had to pick one, I think if if you offered them either, they'd take it. To be honest, and if they got both, that would be incredible. But I think it's like Red Bull last year, where they just won. It's been so long for them since they've had one. They just won the championship at the end of the day. I think if I were on the uh, Ferrari strategic team, I'd go and say prioritise the constructors because then you'll go and help Leclerc 
uh, moving forwards against his battle with Verstappen because yes the momentum is with Verstappen at the moment but he's still got a rather healthy lead on him that is and of course we see that the entirety of any Formula 1 season there is always swings to one driver or one team versus another so it would be foolish I'd argue to go and say now that it's all going to be Verstappen and Leclerc won't get a break he won't get any luck he may never even get a back-to-back podium ever again or a, or a, a win at least so I think yeah you've got you've got to go and prioritise the constructors there because currently as we saw in the race just gone by Perez without those power issues would have overtaken Sainz and nearly did with the power issues and then you've got essentially two Red Bulls which look very I'd say somewhat even really in what they can do Perez is doing a fantastic job versus one Ferrari car and Leclerc who's a very competent driver yes but he's not God he's not invincible and for, and the Ferrari car itself doesn't look as uh, strong or as capable as it was prior so I think work's got to be done looking at the longer term and playing the longer game to bring Sainz back into it. Not that he's been forced out in the cold or anything. He's had two duff races back-to-back and that's put him on a back back foot, really, and forced Ferrari's hand, I'd argue, in prioritising Leclerc because I do think they very much entered uh, this season on a fairly even kilter owing to Sainz beating Leclerc last season. You know, I think that's brushed over and not talked about enough. Sainz in his first season beat Leclerc. And we know how capable Leclerc is. We know how capable Ferrari think he is as well. So to go and achieve that is somewhat remarkable. Yes, there's been a bit of a downturn now in terms of the uh, Australian and uh, Imola races for signs. But bring him back in, get that momentum going in his favour, and you aid Leclerc, you aid the whole team. So easier said than done, but I think the constructors and prioritising that is the way to go, considering as well we're only five races in to the season as well. If you go and put all your eggs, your eggs in the uh, Leclerc basket this early, then that's just going to go and alienate Leclerc uh, signs and um, not be good for team morale either. No, I, 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 I kind of see what you're both saying, I, and unfortunately, I can see it—a scenario where they have to pick because the standings now are what well, are so close. The driver standings, uh, there is now 19 points between Verstappen and Leclerc. That's not that many, if we're brutally honest. And that means Verstappen only has to beat Leclerc three times. And and, And he will then be in the lead. Similarly, if we look at the teams, there's only six points now between Ferrari and Red Bull. With Ferrari on 157 points and Red Bull on 151 points. <laughs> That's, well, they, they just have to beat Ferrari once. <laughs> That's it. They just have to have a better result. And so we're getting to the point now where I think Ferrari's going to have to play things strategically. Whether or not they're willing to sacrifice Carlos Sainz to slow down Max Verstappen, for example, and play the game so that Leclerc can keep in the lead and and or whether or not they'll be willing to t- to lose first place and collectively get that second and third position and keep Perez in fourth place because in the end of the day it's better to have that second and third result than first and fourth or and and those are the kind of decisions that I don't think Ferrari will be used to and you know vice versa Red Bull's going to have to start playing that game as well and I think that's going to cause them some real problems. I think it would be a massive headache for Red Bull to be in the situation where they win the constructors but not the title. 
not the driver's title as well. Because at the end of the day, the, the team is now built around um, Max Verstappen. To some extent, I think it's better if the if we have a, a double win for for the constructor and the 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 driver, you know, being in one team because it kind of you either means you win everything or lose everything. There's no awkward split, right? Where one driver like Max feels like he's he's absolutely raced his heart out, but he couldn't get the drivers' championship. He could only get them the constructors, and so you feel like there's a personal loss there. So. I definitely think this is going to be a really interesting season to to watch as Ferrari in Spain in a couple of weeks' time bring their upgrades because we don't know what effect it's going to have on on their um, top speed and we know as well that Ferrari is good in the medium speed corners. When we were watching the race, Ferrari had that advantage in the sort of sector in the slow sectors, sort of out of sector one and sector two with the slower. Um, the slower chicanes. So Ferrari, I think, have the downforce advantage at the moment. They are definitely running a higher downforce setup. So if they can get those engine upgrades in, if they can start improving the aero efficiency, right, where you no longer have to run such high downforce to get the same amount of overall, right, so reducing your overall drag then I think we can have a real championship fight on us on our hands in both in both cases. So if I was Ferrari, I'd be I would be like you've said, I'd be um, focusing on the constructors. It would be great if Leclerc won, but I think you've got to go with that team effort overall. Mm. And I think on that point as well, Tristan, we're now entering Spain, Monaco and Azerbaijan. And these are three races which require, you know, especially in Monaco and Spain, somewhat in some sectors when it comes to Baku, a lot of downforce, really. So now it comes where it comes for Leclerc and uh, signs in terms of the pendulum swinging more in their favour after more um, speed circuits, shall we say, a power circuit, should I say, um, previously. So exactly... uh, it's one of those where it could easily swing the other way for Ferrari, which I don't, th- which I think is the reason why they shouldn't necessarily panic at this point because we've still got a long way to go, and the Ferrari car itself is by no means, I'd argue, slower than the Red Bull. It's just a case of Verstappen driving the car so well and using everything at his disposal and just showing how good he is versus how poor Ferrari are, for example. But it wasn't just Max Verstappen who had a rather successful Miami Grand Prix. Further down the field, but in the top 10, you had one Alex Albon once again scoring a P9 and some very valuable points there for Williams versus Aston Martin in bringing that team up. And Esteban Ocon as well, finishing P8. And you may say to me, well, Ocon finishing P8, what's so great about that? He's in an Alpine car, which is rather successful. He's a good driver, you know, give him some credit. Sure, but when you consider he started from uh, the back of the grid, aside from to Aston Martins being in the pit lane, which, you know, is to his advantage in some regard. It's another cracking race for him, another cracking race for Albon. And in my mind, they're now showing their worth when it comes to what they can do, because I personally was rather vocal about George Russell leaving being more of a negative than a plus for Williams, considering that Albon was going to be his replacement. Not that there could be an advantage from it, but I thought, is Albon really in the position to be a team leader and really in the position to go and drag that Williams car up? But it appears so, and um, I've always been a knock-on fan, so need I say more? What do you guys think, though, about the two performances there from the, uh, the younger drivers, I guess? 
Yeah, you're right in that there were some definitely star performers in the form of Esteban Ocon and Alex Albon in the Miami Grand Prix. I think Ocon is can't is a bit of an elephant in the room. He did get a little bit lucky and you know, some people believe you make your own luck and he did take advantage of it at the end of the race, but he was on a similar uh, well, the same strategy as, for example, George Russell, where they were going to run long on the hard tires, hope for a safety car or a virtual safety car, and then pit when they were further up the field and hope by that point their tires hadn't degraded enough to send them back down the field by that point. And he got exactly what he wanted. Got a safety car came out, came in, pitted, slotted him in in like eleventh or twelfth. And it meant that he could take advantage at the end of the race. He also gave it also gave him the chance because it was only 13, 14 laps from the end. He stuck on a set of soft tyres, so he was even more quick. And it worked out beautifully for him. Other drivers did manage to take themselves out take themselves out of the way, shall we say, which made his life a little easier. But he still managed to take advantage. And realistically, he wasn't going to overhaul the Mercedes, who were just ahead of him. He wasn't going to overhaul Valtteri Bottas, who'd looked very solid all weekend. So eighth place for him. A very good result, considering he started from the back. He'd missed qualifying. He hadn't driven the chassis he was in for the race, because his qualifying, his practice crash, sorry, had cracked the chassis, because he crashed into the one barrier on the circuit, which wasn't tech-pro and was just pure concrete, which raises some questions. Don't know why that's not tech-pro, but anyway. But at the same time... He has come back pretty well from a new chassis, a new... I mean, I don't know from personal experience how long it takes to adjust to a new chassis in a Formula 1 car, but it's a new element, it's a new variable, and he's coped very well with it. So, fair play to him. He's really... I mean, once again, I feel like Alonso, again, has had his teammate, if we're comparing. Alonso's had a bit of bad luck. He has driven a good race, made a cracking start, overtook Hamilton, and he went from, like, 11th to 7th on the grid, which is a fantastic start, but then had a few coming togethers, not his cleanest race in terms of his race craft, and then he's got that five-second penalty at the end of the race, which has dropped him out the points. So in comparison to Ocon, it's not been a great weekend. In other news, my prediction that Alpine will get less than 30 points is looking shakier by the day as they get to 26. As they get to 26 within five races. So they've got to get five more points, four more points in eighteen races, achievable, I think. But just, Fernando, just, Fernan- just, just. <laughs> Fernando Alonso's loss was Alex Albon's gain. As Albon, once again, I mean, we knew this boy, this boy, this lad, this bloke had talent. We knew he had talent because he's shown it when he was in that Toro Rosso, and in his early Red Bull days, he was rapid, he was quick. But the thing with him was always. Could he stand up to it mentally? And he's proving himself to be similar to Gasly, at least, a couple of years ago, in that they're both clearly very quick. In a top team, up against a formidable object that is Max Verstappen, they're they're not on his level. But when asked to lead a team, when asked to put their foot down and take a team forward, they can do it. I honestly really feel like he's getting the most out of his Williams at the moment. I mean, he qualified down in 18th place. That Williams was the slowest car in qualifying. Obviously, if you take out Esteban Ocon because he didn't take part, it was the slowest car in qualifying. And he's really managed to take advantage. He's finished ahead of other faster cars, like the Aston Martin of Stroll was a faster car. 
The Alpine's a faster car. The Alpha Tauri is a faster car. Ricardo in the McLaren as well has a pace advantage. And and the Hasses as well. Admittedly, they self-destructed, but still a faster car. And Albon was there. One of the more important things in F1 sometimes is being there to pick up the pieces and take advantage. And he was there. He's in the right position. Even little things such as being within five seconds of Alonso so that he could, so that when Alonso gets his penalty, Albon can uh, subsequently be able to take advantage on the timesheets. So he's just he's just doing things right at the moment, Alex Albon, and he's putting his more I was about to say more experienced, but in terms of Williams drives, his more experienced teammate in the shade. So the two drivers who had very good weekends and having very good starts to the season as well, and you can't fault much of what those two are doing at the moment. No, red haired Albon seems to be the dominating album type. Um I don't know if you saw it, he dyed his hair. Um, for the Melbourne Grand Prix, and he finished tenth, and so uh, he then re-dyed it for Miami red, and he got points again. He didn't, however, have dyed hair for uh, Imola. Points so, come at great cost. Uh, so yeah, mm. <laughs> so as it turns out, Albon having red hair seems to uh, motivate him to uh, getting points, which I think is fantastic, and. We often say, and I think we've said this a lot, and I don't mind repeating it because I think it's absolutely true, that consistency is key in Formula One. And being in a competitive car will lead you to, I think, having that an element of complacency because you're, you're banking on it, you know, delivering for you. When you go into the cars that aren't competitive, that might be nearer the bank, the, the back of the grid, you have to think very differently, and you have to be in the situation where you're evade, where you're able to take advantage of little bits of good luck throughout a race, and that's where the skill comes in. And what Albon was able to do during this race was place his car, manoeuvre his car into a situation where the penalties of those ahead, the bad luck of others, fell into his lap. And therefore, he was able to get up into that ninth place for those two points, which is absolutely amazing. And so that shows you the skill of a, of a driver. Yes, to some extent, you know, it's great when you can be taking a midfield car to the top places that's very very similar but for a team like Williams that last week I called completely uncompetitive to get another race weekend where they get some points will be massively motivating and no they're not massively competitive at the moment they're really not they're having to rely on some bad luck of others but hey bad luck for others comes around all the time in this sport and you've got to be able to capitalize on that absolutely brilliant and I feel like similarly Ocon was able to do the same thing. He had a 50G impact with the, the, as you say, Angus, the one barrier that didn't have the Tech Pro um, uh, barrier attached to it. So he just hit a bit of concrete with no energy um, being absorbed, which is absolutely ridiculous for him to be able to walk away from. And I feel like Ocon had such a roller coaster of a weekend because 
he was he spent half of it complaining about the um the safety concerns and the fact that FIA weren't listening his 51g crash impact and how it was you know he had to basically get an entirely new car and then then he gets into the into the race and goes up to P8 from P20 to P8 and ends up being like oh um what a great what a great place to race. We love Miami. So, so um, it, I suppose it shows you how fickle the uh, Formula One bunch are because um, a bit of good luck and suddenly the track seems like the best place in the world. But yeah, we had two two very similar things there and I think they, they play into the same sort of camp of two drivers were able to take advantage of the situation and place their car really well. And I think other drivers, which we'll talk about maybe next week, kind of the opposite happened they they were in good positions and they decided not to play it safe and end up ruining their races a bit and and others so massive pat on the back really for Alex Albon and um and Ocon as well because they did brilliantly and I've got to say it as well Bottas another one brilliant absolutely fantastic um really I think for from him yeah he made a bit of a mistake near the end but I think he's doing really well as well. So, yeah, I'm. Um, I thought I, I'm really pleased that Albon is is yet again proving himself to everybody after Helmut Marco and Co. sort of unceremoniously booted him out from the the Red Bull team. Yeah, poor old Bottas. I think that uh, muscle memory kicked in there from the Mercedes days. Just saw two of them, thought, oh, better get out of the way then, and then realised, oh dear, I'm uh, Alpha, in, Alpha America. I'm being harsh there. But yes, uh, Bottas has had a really good weekend as well. Excellent qualifying. Out-qualifying Lewis Hamilton is no mean feat, regardless of the car that you're in. And Albon really is doing quite well. I mean, consider when this season, he's, his lowest uh, place is P14 finish. He's been up to P9, as we saw uh, the last weekend. But for Williams to be up and around the points, fairly consistent, consistently being a P10, a P11, a P13, is huge strides for them, really, when you consider that, yes, they peaked somewhat uh, last season when Russell went through that, that golden uh, few races when he was just about to go and get that Mercedes contract but then fell away after that and before that it was fairly uninspiring unfortunately in terms of finishes but it shows that Williams are making strides now they're no longer the sort of the dog's body and the one that's the, the dead rubber at the back of the grid like Haas were last season I'm sure they want to be up there consistently getting points and doing as well as they did back in 2014 and 13 with Bottas and Massa. But they are going in the right direction. And a lot of that, I think, is down to Alex Albon doing so well. Ocon, I think, is now at the point where he has the ability, has the temperament, has really the flair and everything to lead a team, not only with this re this uh, result, but also when you cast your minds back to how consistent he's been and when you consider that, yes, he's a bit of a hothead, but um, most of his DNFs have come from reliability issues versus anything else more recently. And there was that Grand Prix not so long ago where he hardly pitted or didn't pit at all and then essentially got himself up into the points once again. I, I can't remember the exact race, but you'll know exactly which one I'm talking about there. So he's got the temperament, he's got the intelligence, and um, good luck to them both, really.
And it seems that's all we have time for in terms of episode 11 of F1 in Review. Thank you very much for listening all the way to the end of this one, be it on your preferred podcast provider or on River Radio, be that live or via the Listen Back feature. A reminder, you can follow F1 in Review on Twitter as well as myself and Tristan individually on there as well. Now, round six is in Spain when it comes to F1 2022 and on the calendar, but that's not until May the 20th. So we've got a week's break and Luckily, we've got a few topics to uh, talk about. You may have noticed there was a, a slight mention of Mick Schumacher, a slight mention of him having somewhat of a crash. Be in no doubt we'll get involved in that discussion next time round when it comes to how his race looked so good and then horribly fell away owing to many different things. And we'll be talking as well about Mercedes. There were upgrades brought to this Grand Prix and in many regards it did show a rather solid finish for both Hamilton and Russell after a poor start from Lewis Hamilton there provided us with some actual race action in the first half of the Miami Grand Prix which was very welcome shall we say. Until next time, thank you very much for listening.